Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Revolution, featuring your host, High C. Ludmers. And welcome to this month's Revolution. Thank you so much for listening once again. And to kick things off as we normally do, we're going to start with our roundtable discussion. And for this particular roundtable, I am joined by my fellow co-hosts and guests, John Carousella. Good morning. And Mildred Lynn McDonald. Morning, hi, C. And first, I want to start with a quote because this was something that kind of inspired the idea. And then there was a, a book that's coming out that also was the inspiration for what we're going to be talking about. Uh, the quote is by someone named Marbeth Dunn. And it says, The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. And an author named Jonathan Fields is releasing a new book called how to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science, and Practical Wisdom. And one of the things that he kind of touches on and talks about in this book is what he calls how to live a deliberate life versus a reactive life. So before going any further into that. I just want to hear from you, Mildred and John, and for you listening, for you to also think about when you hear those two terms, what what does it evoke for you if you hear something described as a deliberate life versus a reactive life? Well, I see those two words, deliberate. When I say the word, the feeling that comes to me in regard to deliberate is a sense of core strength. I feel strong inside when I think about the word deliberate or feel the word deliberate. And reactive comes to me in terms of life being in many pieces floating around and sometimes they can be scattered. Now I do believe that you can live a deliberate life and be reactive at the same time. So for example you can choose to react to things and go into quick fire mode but you can still be in a place of core strength, of being deliberate about that. So that's my feeling and view on deliberate versus reactive life. Mm. Uh, for me, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> sorry, for me, uh, deliberate, I, I take from, you know, the, the notion of deliberation, right, where we, uh, we, gather facts and uh, and winnow our perceptions down to a focus. And it's interesting that to to deliberate uh, is to deliberate, right? It's to, it's to, in some sense, remove degrees of freedom. Um, the, and uh, the choice to live a deliberate life is a choice of leading <clears throat> a choice of leading a life 
chosen, right? Um, so it comes from the the self out, right? Whereas a reactive life, to me, comes from the outside in. And uh, to live a reactive life is to not actually be in a place of choice in focus, but to rather be in a place of choosing to actually consciously choosing or unconsciously choosing to not focus and to let the world the world's events uh, wash over you and then from that rich experience of life's events respond react in whatever way suits you in a, any particular moment so one is a very central core based on focus and the other is uh, very in a, in a sense carefree but also um, the energy is not very uh, harmonious it's it's sort of noisy well and I think something that both of you touched on is the idea of deliberate means it's coming from internal the core so it means we're living life that's coming from someplace inside of us, whereas reactive is about something external, whether an external stimulation or event or situation or person. And therefore, we would be living life always based on what's happening outside of us rather than living life from what's within or inside of us. And one of the things that um, Jonathan Fields talks about in his book, uh, How to Live a Good Life, um, is he talks about the idea of busyness and how so many people, and this is kind of his, I think, definition of a reactive life, is we get so caught up in the busyness that we're engaged in that we actually are no longer living our lives for ourselves, but we're living our life according to what everyone and everything else outside of us needs or is imposing on us or demanding from us, etc. So I would ask the question, do you think that we have replaced meaning and purpose of life with busyness? You know, uh, there's a part of the, uh, see you had sent us a, a bit more background on this, and there's a part of that conversation, that interview, uh, with um, Jonathan Fields that really struck me that this busyness that we're experiencing comes from an incremental uh, deterioration of focus. We have so many things that vie for our attention and in an attempt to be I think to be in community such as it is in our lives today right uh the, you know to to do the performative tasks that put you in uh in community at work or put you in community uh around your you know at school or, or you know with you know the parents teacher association or whatever whatever it is we are it's like a death of a thousand cuts uh, uh to our focus and I, so, in a sense, the busyness is a choice 
that comes from seeking to seeking to to be in community to 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 belong and it's incremental and it's deleterious incrementally and cumulatively it really, really tears us down because after you know uh, a couple of years of behaving in this way you realize wow none of the things that are important to me are at the top of my list uh so in a sense what's taking place is that the top of our list is has become staying connected doing the socially required things or the the uh, the apparent social obligations responding to email and you know tidying things up and so on these all become what we do because we think that's what it takes for us to be to belong and so our it looks to me like the highest priority has become belonging through social performance which which tells me that we're not doing a very good job of holding people in communion and in community uh, for the things that are actually their gifts so yeah I think the to answer the question directly I think uh, busyness has become uh, a toxic method of attempting to find belonging. And I don't think it works very well. John, I really like the sense of belonging and community. I hadn't thought about it that way. When I was looking at this question, has busyness replaced meaning for life? I immediately went to looking at how my day could be. Like anybody else, I get email, there's Facebook, there's different situations and scenario pulling on my sleeve. And I could easily spend my whole day being busy. And at the end of the day, feeling empty from that busyness. And what I've noticed through my life journey is that people who step back and tend to be reflective in nature or learn to become reflective in nature, give themselves the gift of being reflective in nature, quickly realize this emptiness that's generated by being busy or the illusion of being busy. And I hadn't tied that into sense of community and that innate need to belong before. So I really want to say, wow, that's a great point. So what I've noticed is that it's very easy, if you let go, if you're not aware, if you're not in the present, it's very easy to slip and slide into that daily living that's so busy and so empty because there's so many structures in society that promote that. And one of the biggest one is TV. I was recently out of town and I was at a conference and in the hotel room there was a TV and I don't watch TV normally except when I am in a hotel room as an educational tool and the comical part is I'm always looking at TV commercials for the first time which I find very entertaining. But at the end of it I realize that I'm left with a sense of urgency, I'm sent, left with a sense I'm not enough, I'm left with a sense of something more is needed and I better get busy to take care of that. I better do, 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 do. The other part, because I'm reflective in nature, 
I take a step back and I say, well, even if I do all those things, there's no fulfillment and there's no no satisfaction there because it has nothing to do with the meaning of my life. Actually, it's counteractive to the meaning of my life. So what I would share in terms of meaning, meaning in life and busyness, uh, what I would share with people from my own journey is like, number one, yes, I, I feel that the busyness is more highly valued right now than finding your meaning or purpose in life. And the second thing that I would share is that it's necessary to take a step back and identify and recognize the busyness for what it is. And it may have absolutely nothing to do with your meaning of life. So that's how I feel about it. Well, and I think that what you said there, first, it made me think that perhaps being reflective is actually the opposite of being reactive. And we spend a lot more time falling into the trap of being reactive rather than taking time to be reflective. Because I, I just think about how often do we feel like we have to come up with a, an answer or a fix or a response to something in the moment rather than being able to say, give me some time to think about that so I can come back with the best response. Um, because people are always afraid of it looking bad or something like that if if they don't have something to say something to offer something to do in the in that moment even if it's just a reaction to what's going on rather than the best thing or the right thing for what's going on um but also like with television and facebook and all those kind of social media and those kind of things that's where you get into the idea of being deliberate is also choosing what you allow to come in and how you consume it rather than just having it on. Because there's a difference between deliberately choosing what show you're going to watch for a particular reason versus sitting down to just watch whatever's on for the sake of having noise or escape or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that being deliberate also says I'm going to reflect on the best way for me to structure and use my day and to be cognizant of how what we do at the beginning of a day often sets the energy or mindset or tone for the day. And I think a lot of people start the day being reactive because they immediately get up and the first thing they think they need to do is check email and respond to something somebody's sent, see what's on Facebook, um, you know, it's all of these things that they have to immediately start doing rather than allowing themselves to ease into the day. And I would challenge people to actually block out time in the day for when they're going to be on social media, but only do it during that time rather than making it a constant back and forth. Like you're working on something and you see the little notification come in that an email came in and so you pop over to look at it rather than staying focused on what you're doing in that moment. Because that to me is being reactive to that notification rather than staying focused and deliberate in what it is that you are already doing. Um, so I, I, I would be curious what you think that seems to make people so reticent or afraid even to reduce or to disconnect themselves from the busyness. Well, I think, you know, I think it has to do with this sense of, of belonging and, and we, we get a kind of psychological 
hit a, a, a lift when someone either asks us for something or responds to something that we have offered, right? It's a validation of our belonging, of our sense of being part of something. And if you step away from that, the natural experience will be that you're not getting that validation, not as frequently, uh, perhaps not as, uh, as, as consistently. And it may be that it's literally a withdrawal symptom or triggers a, triggers a withdrawal symptom where you're like feeling the need to get that validation again. You're feeling isolated and that isolation is very uncomfortable. Now, whether you're truly isolated or not, Right. I, I want to separate the the impression from the from the reality. Uh, you might not be on Facebook for a week, and people might miss you. And when you come back, they're delighted. Right. That you're you you didn't belong any less during the week that you you didn't feel the validation of connection in that week. So I think that's why people step back away, or sorry, I think that's why people have trouble stepping away from busyness, because busyness means validity. It's validation. I'm busy doing stuff that matters to my social standing, and the people that I need to see me, see me doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and therefore I belong. And, and yet, you take that away, that, that, that I don't get that reinforcement anymore, and now I'm wondering, and now I'm like going through withdrawal. And yet we have record numbers of people suffering from or diagnosed with things like anxiety and depression and feeling disconnected, you know, and, and there's many studies that now show that people will start to go into anxiety or depression because they don't get a certain number of likes to a post on Facebook. Right. Um, you know, and but you know, but all of those things are really reactive because it says I will be happy, I will feel validated if something external to me does something. So if if I see their reaction to what I did, then I can react in a way that is either positive or negative depending on if I get likes, enough likes or not enough likes, you know, or whatever. Um but it's almost like an addiction to the busyness yeah. Yeah. and and you use the word withdrawal you know and uh, it's it's almost i think it's that idea that people are so afraid of being themselves and being in relationship with themselves that they have forgotten how to actually live in the world as themselves because they think that only thing that creates meaning is how many friends we have. And I use that word in multiple ways. You know, how many friends do you have in your life? How many friends do you have on your list in Facebook? You know, how many views did something get? All of that's become the measure of somehow our place or importance in the world. 
to the detriment of being able to determine that for ourselves. And, you know, it's almost as if people need something in return in order to feel validated rather than being able to do something simply because it is something they would like to do or it satisfies them, even if it means they do that by themselves, for themselves, and even if nobody else knows. You know, can I enjoy a vacation if I don't post any pictures of it on Facebook for other people to see? And that, to me, is very reactive rather than deliberate in the sense of, well, I want to take this vacation. I'm going to go, and I'm going to enjoy being in this place and looking at what I'm looking at, even if I don't make any document of it, because I will have that for myself. So, Mildred, do you have any thoughts on why you think people may be so afraid of or resistant to reducing or disconnecting from busyness and get so lost in busyness thinking that that's the meaning and purpose of life? Sure, I do. Number one, I think I alluded to it before, busyness or doing is rewarded in society because often it's tangible, whereas being, not being busy, is looked at for some reason being a negative, maybe because it's intangible and you don't see anything, although many, many times the being part is so valuable. The other part I wanted to talk about was John, you had mentioned the sense of belonging. And as you were speaking, what was coming to me is you need to belong to yourself first. Mm. If you don't belong to yourself, you have no filter. You have no borders or edges that you can discern data coming into you. You just don't know how to process it. It just becomes one big blah. You know, where are the perimeters of this? How do you measure it? It measure its value measure its relevance in your own life. So you have to, you have to belong to yourself first. And then I had a little chuckle because, (laughs) because for the last couple of months, I haven't really been engaged with Facebook. I was engaged with Facebook before in terms of coaching work or mind, body, spirit stuff. That's primarily the type of posts that I send out. But I did make a conscious decision not to be involved with Facebook because my fo- my focus was in an area, a different area, and I didn't miss myself a bit on Facebook. So I was kind of <laughs> laughing there. Yeah, you didn't so, miss yourself a bit because you missed myself with you. a bit. Yeah, and what it really did was I I would go into myself and say, well, I'm focused on something else. This area of focus has direct relevance to my meaning and purpose of life. Facebook and sharing mind, body, spirit information through that tool it's not relevant at at the time but because i had that core strength because i believed in my purpose and meaning it i didn't give it a second thought now if i didn't have that core strength if i hadn't had the discipline to develop that i belong to myself i would probably be having lots of self-talk like oh my heavens if i'm not on facebook blah 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 and blah 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 and i say blah 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 because that's as much credence or as importance as I would give it. So I I think that's really important and it kind of goes back to that core strength of belonging to yourself first. So that's why I think people are afraid. I really like that. The, the having a, having a sense of self that is resilient in the absence of reinforcement and validation is as as demonstrated by Mildred Lynn, and, and you know, we those of us who know her know and love her because she has this incredible 
uh, in part because she has this incredible resilience of self. Uh, and I, I think that's not common in our culture. I think we have somewhere along the way kind of um, lost the capacity for confident self-definition. And in a, in a very real sense, self-love, independent of others' social validation. And I think that makes us weak. It makes us uh, prone to being manipulated by uh, the by the onslaught of stimulation that modern life pours upon us and pours over us. I think I think without a strong sense of self and a strong sense of self-love, it's very easy to get washed away in the tide of noise. And then you then you really are living a reactive life, and I don't think that's healthy. Well, in having that sense of self, having something at the core means there's something solid to always come back to, something that gives you that stability. That's why we talk about like grounding ourselves um, or centering ourselves, and all of these other things. How do you find meaning in life in things that are so ephemeral, like? you know, Facebook posts and how many likes you get, because as quickly as you're looking at a post, you're on to the next post and then you're on to the next one. Or as quickly as you post something and get likes for it, you're thinking about what do I post next to continue to generate this validation for myself. So there's nothing solid there for someone to, to kind of latch on to, or even, you know, outside of social media in, in the world, it's like, we we get involved with the PTA, like you had said, John. We, we you know we we have to go and and contribute to our part in the in the PTA. But even as we're doing that, we're already thinking about okay, but PTA meeting will be over at seven, so then I have a half an hour to get from that to this other thing. And it's again, it's very ephemeral. It's always on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, and people never take a moment to actually stop and just be in and be with what they're doing or what they're experiencing. Um, and something that Jonathan Fields um, says is that I think is very important to think about are asking ourselves, do we use busyness as a status symbol? So are we doing things because of how we think it's going to look or be accepted, et cetera? And are we willing to ask ourselves the question of why are we busy and what is it that we're busy with? And what are we giving up in order to be busy that may be giving up or taking away from what it is we might really want for ourselves or might be actually more satisfying, fulfilling, uh, nourishing um, for ourselves because we are engaged in the busyness of others. Uh, so, you know, in, in thinking about that, what might be a suggestion that you would have for people to help them think about and to be willing to take more responsibility for how they choose to live life rather than simply living a life that isn't their own? Uh, well, for me, I see, I wanted to go back to the quote that you started the conversation with, the Marbeth Dunn quote, the meaning of life is to find your gift, the purpose of life is to give it away. And in all of my, you know, my reflections on busyness as a proxy for social validation and and, and um, belonging. I think the thing that 
the thing that we as a culture have kind of dropped the ball on is recognizing in each individual that individual's unique gift. And so if, if there was a, a way to take responsibility for choosing to, deliver, to, to live a deliberate life, I would say uh, that to, to quote Marbeth Dunn, or to paraphrase Marbeth Dunn, find your gift and share it. And in, in doing that, you'll discover a couple of things. The first thing you'll discover is that you have a gift. <laughs> a unique gift, the thing that's 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 uh, powerfully, validatingly beautiful that you can love about yourself. So you'll get some sense of self-love from that experience. And the other thing that you'll discover is that other people will find it valuable. And you can actually be in service by sharing your gift. Now, there's a, there's a trick there, right, which is to share your gift without ego, right? Because what if you share your gift and somebody doesn't want it and then you feel, uh, then you, then you feel bad that you, you, know, you failed or you don't belong or you're not good enough or whatever? Um, but that's not what this is about. This is about sharing, not demanding that the share is accepted and letting the share be accepted by those for whom it is valuable, right? And we were talking about this earlier, about radio shows and audiences, and uh, the idea that one can develop a show and share something that is, that is a gift that's, that somebody has and not worry about the audience, let the audience, you know, that's a little inside talk here, but it, it, it reflects on this idea that you find your gift, and then you share it, and that's meaning. And that's, that leads to connection, and that leads to fulfillment. Well, and I think it's also important for people to be willing to take time to sit with themselves to discover their own gift, rather than, and to me this is part of being reactive, is constantly looking to someone or something outside of them to somehow identify and tell them what their gift is. Because, and I, and I get that from people sometimes when they come for readings, they they want a reading to tell them, you know, what they're supposed to be passionate about in life rather than realizing they have to sit with themselves and <laughs> tap into their own passion rather than something outside of them telling them what their passion should be. And Mildred, do you have any suggestions for people? I do, I do. I read a quote, and I was sitting here listening to you guys and trying to remember when I first came across this quote, and probably about three months ago. And the quote went like this. It has, some, it has relevance to life meaning and life purpose. And I'll paraphrase because I can't remember the exact quote, but basically the essence is, if you want to know what your whole life is about, look at how you spend your days. Because your days are a micro version of how you choose to express your purpose and meaning. And that really hit me because it rang true. So if people are out there, they're listening, they're interested in the busyness of their life and whether or not the busyness 
is the road to emptiness. You can take this quote and extrapolate out a practice from it. So once again, if you want to know what your whole life is about, simply look at how you're spending your days because your days are a micro version of your meaning and purpose of life. I thought, I thought that was really profound and I use that. I actually use that every day. Mildred Lynn, would you, would you suggest that people having examined their, uh, their days uh, and perhaps found their days to be less inspiring and less fulfilling than they thought to then re-sculpt their days around something that is more meaningful? I would definitely, and I do it myself. I find I'm always looking for different filters and road signs. So one thing from creating a daily practice of this, which I have, is don't look at a bunch of your days. Look at the, in the evening, look at the day you have immediately spent and look at your level of fulfillment or satisfaction or emptiness and just take those small steps, those small bites, and then you will start to turn the boat gradually. And this, and this isn't to deny the fact that like people have to go into the office for a job, you know, and that kind of thing, but it's being more intentional in either creating a little moments within the day that you can just take for yourself, even if that means going outside for five minutes rather than complaining about how dry the air conditioning has, you know, made you feel. Um, It's like, okay, then choose to step out of the air conditioning on a regular basis throughout the day, even for a couple of minutes. Um, It could mean not, not saying yes to things when you feel like you have to or supposed to. So if you've had a long day of work and you are supposed to go to dinner with some people, it's okay to perhaps cancel and say, can we do this a different time rather than push yourself to the point of exhaustion, living up to the obligation Um, which becomes reactive because you're now living for others rather than being intentional in what you know you may need for yourself. And we can look at how we spend the day and then we can deliberately choose how to inject those moments for what we need in the day, even amidst things that we may have less control over, like needing to be at the office and that kind of thing. Um, But again, it means people have to stop and be quiet and turn off the outside noise and actually sit with that for themselves, evaluate it for themselves, not ask other people to look at their day and think, what should I be doing differently or better, but to actually be willing to do that for themselves. Um, And I think that's, for me, one of the big takeaways of this topic is it's about spending enough time with yourself to understand who you are, what you need, and how you need to do or structure something rather than always doing that or basing that on how others do it or what other people or other things are telling you it should be done. And that's not selfishness. That's actually being way more productive for your community than the alternative because you actually spend the time to discover what is important and valuable and what wants to come out of you instead of being reactive to what might or might not be what's the your your best offering to the community 
So I want to say thank you to John Carousella. Always a pleasure. And to Mildred Lynn McDonald. Great topic, Heisey. For having been willing to join me and discuss this. And hopefully those listening have also been given some food for thought and some variety of perspective to look at themselves and look at their lives in some way. And I encourage those listening to stay tuned for the rest of the show. And as always, I remind you, if you would like to get a reading later in the show, you can get into the queue by connecting in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. You're listening to Revolution with High C, and we will be right back. with host Heisey Ludmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. A return to this understanding of the truth of food and the value of food within our lives. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. December. And so it is the end of the year, how fast it seems to have come and then be gone. December has such beautiful, wondrous visions associated with its sweet, magical innocence 
in the memories of times gone by, fantasies flying around. This gives energy to this now filled with the same gift of life. December is the best of winter months in many ways because winter is new, the snow is fresh, the heart still warm. It's a festive time of year to be sure. It conjures up the excitement of parties and gatherings, friends and families. Christmas trees, sparkling lights, candles caroling, bustling cities all decorated in lights, beautiful window front decorations, to the deep solitude of the mountain cabin, wood fire burning. The best food, best clothes, dressing up, savoring the blessings of the year, celebrating the return of the light, celebrating the many myths and stories that abound at this time of year. At the solstice, the sun, S-U-N-S-O-N, rises, is born anew into the constellation Virgo, the Virgin, and it goes on like that. Some say there is no evidence of a historical person, Jesus. Some say the Bible is a military treaty of the Roman Empire and Caesar, a piece of propaganda to get the Jews to wish worship Caesar without them knowing. Religion seems to be about the destruction of the soul, not the saving of it. Lies abound in all of life, and it does us well to look more deeply than the surface for our answers. And the answers, most always, can be found within. And so it is about the return of the light, within and without. Remember that the body goes through the earth cycles too, whether we know it or not, or honor it or not. Honoring makes it so much more rich and deeply satisfying, rewarding. We honor it by accepting it, by being with it as it is, experiencing the deep offering of each moment. As we go about setting our intentions for the new year and saying goodbye to the old, know that for any resolution to be successful, you will have to look within. You must see where the glitches are that keep you from being successful. See the false beliefs that keep us locked into our filtered reality that is always reflecting back our beliefs. For as within, so without. Change your mind, change your world is also true. And doing and following through is very empowering. But it takes effort and determination, integrity, honesty, deep seeing of self, love and acceptance to see what is and let it go. Remembering who we are is key to freedom. So let us celebrate the return of the light, the mystery, and awe of this place we call Earth, home, mother, Gaia. Let us remember to love one another and help one another to realize that without community, there is no life. To deeply care for the Earth and each other, that no one shall be without home, food, medical. How could we have ever let this happen in the first place? This is a deep question to ask yourself, for without the gifts of the heart, all is lost. Balance is not achieved. Let us see that it is time to stand together, men and women as equals, together, making this a place of truth, balance, harmony, fair share for all, that no tribe member is left out. Again, how could this ever happen? We have wandered far into the desert of life. It's time to turn around. Celebrate what is real in life. Dream the new dream where all are equal. Honor life, your life, and live in accordance. Honor winter's offering to look within, to get in touch with who we are. 
For seeds sprout in the dark of the rich soil and compost. This is life. May the light of this season fill your heart with love to overflowing, blessing the year to come. May peace and brotherhood be lived in the deep gratitude for this unfolding mystery that we are. May we all awaken to the message of the heart calling out in so many ways. May we once again remember what it means to truly care for one another in the earth. And as we do this, all divisions melt into the nothingness that they are, and we find our way again as common humanity. This truth releases all lies, and we live again. Tips. Keep warm on the inside and outside. Inside by using warming herbs and spices, curries, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, cardamom, garlic, onions, ginger. All these herbs and spices have healing properties. So using them often offers support for the body. Baked winter squash is warming and soothing. Mashed with butter and brags, topped with green onions and parmesan. Served with quinoa, sautéed greens, and assorted winter veggies with onions and garlic. Topped with green onions, a bit of feta and brags. Add some beans if you like. It's a delicious, warming, comforting, healing, tasty, satisfying meal. Simple, clean food at its best, the way nature intended it to be. Use extra cream on the face and body. The cold is very drying, as in dehydrating so we also need to drink lots of water. Make it warm with ginger and lemon. This is cleansing and warming. A warm lemon and ginger tea in the morning is also a great way to start the day. I have been making my smoothies in the morning now with fresh raw apple juice and greens and a dash of ginger juice. It's delicious because unless you live in the tropics, the only fruit there is right now is your saved apples. And therefore, it's the seasonal thing to do. I also suggest watching some fun seasonal movies with family and friends. There are many that open the heart and tell the truth. Noel was one I just watched the other night with Susan Sarandon and Penelope Cruz. It's a vignette of some people's lives at Christmas. It's very touching and heartwarming. The Miracle on 34th Street, it's a classic, along with White Christmas with Bing Crosby. The book that I recommend this month is The Dream Book by Betty Bethards. This is one of the best dream book interpretation helpers that I've come across. It's about helping with our inner journey. It is time to dream away, to dream the new dream, that all may come to pass that is of the heart. For it is the season to enjoy and celebrate and connect from the heart with all we meet. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy And remember, it's only a dream. 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 Thank you.
thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. You can stop an avalanche as it races down the hill. You can try to stop the seasons, but you know you never will. And you can try to stop my dancing feet. But I just cannot stand still Cause the world keeps spinning round and round And my heart's keeping time to the speed of sound I was lost till I heard the drums And I found my way Cause you can stop the beat Five, six, seven, eight My revolutionary guest this month is life coach Zach Scheib. Growing up on a small farm in rural Pennsylvania, Zach was drawn to the finer energies in the universe and spent a great deal of time adventuring through the woods on his own, listening to the trees, to the stream, and to the wind. As an awareness developed around his calling as a healer, and he started really opening up to this subconscious need to heal and fix, Zach ventured off to college, where he received a bachelor's degree in psychology. During that time, the idea of life coaching entered his head, but also left it again, only to resurface with great force a few years later. Today, now living in Berkeley, California, Zach Scheib is a life coach helping people wind their way along their life's journey to discover who they are, how to embrace it, and be happy. Starting with three foundational questions, who are you, what makes you happy, and how do you live it? Zach meets you where you are, allowing him to walk with you for a while, bringing into focus the path that is laid out for you, and bringing you into deep happiness, contentment, fulfillment, and joy. Zach is always learning and expanding his toolbox with new ways to heal and help. A long-standing fascination with string, natural fibers, and textiles has led Zach to having his own spinning wheel and loom, which he uses to create simple yarns and cloth items as part of the slow clothes movement, which stresses the importance of clothes that are beneficial for our bodies as well as for the environment. He also has a passion for cooking, reading, and writing fantasy. To find out more about Zach Scheib and what he offers as a life coach, 
you can visit his website at scheiblifecoaching.com, which is S-C-H-E-I-B as in boy, lifecoaching.com. So please join Hi-C in giving an enthusiastic welcome to revolutionary guest and life coach, Zach Scheib. And welcome, Zach Scheib. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with me here on the show today. It is a, a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as we heard in the introduction, you are a an up-and-coming life coach. Um, maybe we could just start by you giving a little description of what it means to be a life coach, because we hear that term a lot, but people may not be quite clear on what that is or how that's different than being a therapist or what it entails. So maybe you can just talk to us a little bit about what being a life coach means and is for you. Sure. Um, so being a life coach, um, you are a person um, who is led to help others find their own happiness. It is not a therapist who is telling you what to do or prescribing or telling you your problem. It is more someone to walk along the path with you to help you find your journey's end. Or not even your journey's end, but simply which road is the road that you are actually meant to walk on. Um, So... You know, for instance, I'm not going to say, well, you need to do um, three push-ups in the morning and spin on your head five times and you're going to live to be 100. It's much more of just asking questions and I guess you could say they're kind of leading questions, um, but the whole point is for the individual to discover the truths that are already within them and enable them to back them up in times of lack of confidence, weakness, whatever you'd like to say. So that's kind of how I see it. That's that's the role that I am playing in um, a session with a client. Yeah, that's that's my take on it. And I suppose that's why the word coach or coaching is there, because it's really about nudging or helping and facilitating just like a coach of a sports team for example they're not telling them how to play the game necessarily versus they're helping to facilitate them playing the game as best as they can based on how the player does it um so so what would you then say because we also hear of things like career coach or relationship coach so is is life coach just something that is broader in scope or does a life coach focus on a particular aspect or thing or way of working with someone that wouldn't necessarily incorporate what a relationship coach or something like that would do? I think you could ask 10 life coaches that question and you're going to get 10 different answers. Um, In general, I think the accepted definition of a a life coach would be the bigger picture person that's going to help you in all of those aspects. And if you as the client want to talk about relationship, then that's what we're going to help you with. Or if you 
want to talk about career. That's what we're going to help you with. Whereas a career coach, they're just specialized in, we're really going to talk about your career. If relationship comes up, we can talk about it, but we're probably going to steer clear of that. Um, I see my role as a life coach as really being that you you exist. And let's say, you know, you're not depressed necessarily. You're not um, you're not mourning. Well, you might be mourning actually. Um, you're not super excited. You just you kind of exist day to day. And I am going to help facilitate you going from just living to thriving. I want your life to go from lowercase l to capital L. So that's that's kind of what I see the purpose of life coach being. So maybe you can take us back in time to, you know, where your background is um, and where you come from that either informed or led you to following this path towards being a life coach? Um, sure. Um, I guess I will, I'll start in college because that's really where the word life coach came into my mind. Um, I have my bachelor's in psychology and while I was studying for that, um, I think it was my junior year, I just, I wasn't attracted to the model of helping sick people or fixing things. You know, yes, I totally acknowledge that there are real mental illnesses in the world and that there are many ways to go about treating them, but I didn't want to do that. I saw a great need in, well, there are people that just live their day-to-day -day lives that could be living it in such a happier state. Um, I was actually on the phone with my mom one night uh, just you know, just chilling outside the dorm, just catching up, and started crying, just gushing tears of, Mom, there's just so much pain in the world. They're just not as happy as they could be, and they don't see that they could be happier. It's not even that they're sick. They just they don't know how to be happier. I want to help people find that greater happiness and... It wasn't long after that that the words life coaching came into my mind, and I like kind of looked into it, but not really seriously because I was a wild college kid, and it kind of just settled under the surface, um, and then, you know, college continued. I held a huge variety of jobs, and in every one, even if I didn't like it, I always had this little voice in the back of my head saying, like, use this time to learn what other people are like. Like, I worked in an envelope factory at one point, printing envelopes, and I would go into the lunchroom like a little anthropologist to learn about, like, what are these blue-collar people like? Or, like, what does this industry attract people to? Or um, anything like that. But every job that I found, I had, I kind of did that just, to gain the experience of like what is life like in a certain setting for a certain kind of people or person I should say um, and then when I moved to California 
the second time, <laughs> um, I, I really started honing in on people like to talk to me. People feel comfortable talking to me. I have acquired quite a few perspectives of where people are coming from. Hmm. I should use this. And one evening I was, I was working the line in a restaurant and I, this life coach came back into my head and I'm like, I think I need to be a life coach. And I, I just said it out loud. And one of my coworkers, yeah, I would totally come pay you and talk to you to be a life coach for me. Like, that's a great idea. And then the next day, I stopped by the local internet place because we didn't have internet at home at the time. And just my partner was there, and I just dropped in to say hello. And the woman who owns the place um, was talking to him, and she happens to be a life coach. And I thus thought, oh, perfect timing. Sat down, and I was like, so what is your story? How did you become a life coach? And we started talking, and I got really you know, that tingly feeling in your gut where you're just like, oh, this feels so right. And then um, someone walks in the door and the woman I was already speaking with, she looks who it was and she's like, oh, speak of the devil, like perfect timing. This woman is also a life coach. And so she came over also and started, you know, talking and how she, what her path was. And I'm just like, this is too much, like too beyond serendipitous um and that was kind of like, like the final blow in the first nail like into the structure of this is you need to do this you need to pursue this like you are supposed to be a life coach or some kind of person that heals and helps so yeah that was that really is like the major route on which i got to be where I am now. Plus, you know, many hours of therapying myself and deep thinking and crying and joyful laughter and yeah, that's my that's the short version, I guess you'd say. <laughs> and what would you say is the difference between psychology or being a psychologist versus going in the direction of being a life coach? What was it about after having studied psychology, you felt that's not quite right versus being a life coach is. Because some people would think they're really the same thing. And mm -hmm. I know uh, cynical people would say people become a life coach because they don't want to go to school to get training or to get a degree in psychology or psychiatry. But I think that there is a, a difference between them. Um, so I'm just curious what it was about the psychology side of things that didn't quite resonate for you versus what being a life coach is and what that difference is? Psychology, in my view and my experience, is really taking broken things and fixing them or taking things that we perceive to be broken and trying to bring them to a state of balance or a state of being okay whereas life coaching it's it's taking the okay and making it better it's these two just two different parts of the path like if you have an arm and you 
break the bone. The psychologist is going to set and fix the bone, but the life coach is going to strengthen the muscle around the bone or make the ligaments and joints more flexible or you just, you know, take that limb and not fix it, but just make it more than it was before. Well, and I think uh, a term that you use there to me is actually really important because a life coach, for example, in my view, doesn't look at and perceive people as broken. Whereas psychology and that kind of, and psychiatry and that kind of thing tend to always be looking at or looking for what's broken mm-hmm. um, in order to diagnose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that does a disservice to people because it's created this culture where people feel broken because th- there's kind of this norm that's been created of what it, what is supposed to be healthy or normal or standard. Whereas something like life coaching says, come to me as you are, not because you're broken, <laughs> but come to me as you are, and we're going to take that as the starting point to elevate you. Right. Yes. Um, there is a young branch of psychology that is called positive psychology, which very much works with, you know, it is almost life coaching. It's, it's focusing, you know, it still dabbles in the whole realm of you're broken, let's fix you. You know, it's trying to take the normal person to make them better, but I would say it's still in that psychology realm because it looks at, it views not being happier than just okay as a problem, you know. So I don't care how you come to me. I'm going to guide you to be the happy that you want to be, you know. You don't come to me if you don't already see that you could be happier. I can't, I'm not going to be able to show you that. But once you come to me, then, yeah, I can guide you along the way. Um, Yeah. I would say the only only addendum to that that I would say is that there definitely are instances where you might have a legitimate issue that you should look into, um, like hormonal imbalances or some type of neurotransmitter. I don't by any means... um, necessarily believe in pharmaceuticals. I think there are way better ways to treat everything, but sometimes you just need to get on track. And in those cases, a psychiatrist or a psychologist can get you to that point. And that's when I can step in and be like, okay, we're back at zero. Let's go. Let's start running. So, um, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in a family that, you know, had some sort of connection to this kind of work or encouraged looking at the world in this way? Um, or, or is this, you know, a completely divergent path from the <laughs> the way that you grew up? I am divergent, yes. <laughs> um, my I grew up in a very 
conservative area, conservative family. Um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania, which is not known to be one of the more progressive places in the world, but it was, it was honestly a good place to grow up. Um, I attended church every Sunday for 18 years. I sang in the choir. I thought I was a Republican for a very, very long time. Um, but through all that, I always had this, this impulse, this, this drive of magic spirit, you know, the Bible doesn't have all the answers, but like, I see that it's trying to teach this love and compassion, but like, I'm not, I'm not hearing it. What are these other things? And so then I started, you know, investigating like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a Wiccan this week. What's this all about? Or, ooh, I'm going to study Buddhism. And just began collecting all of these philosophies from around the world. But I did it in secret. You know, I did it at the woods. I did it at night in my bedroom under cover of darkness, literally. Um, and it was very much like a, a seed underground. I would say from the you know, time I was born until I went to college, I was in that seed state of just kind of surrounding myself with nutrients and um, setting the stage almost for what was about to come. But my family was very conservative, um, very religious, and it wasn't until I left home and was at college where I suddenly, you know, started seeing the lights shining through the top of the soil and I could put forth my first leaves. Um, yeah, so I, I would say it was not conducive to this type of a viewpoint at all. It, it wasn't hindering. I would not say it was hindering. It was just not encouraging either. I had a very loving family that supported me, just sometimes it took them a little eff extra effort to support me in the things that I saw as being important in life. And where is it that you went to college? A small liberal arts school called Ursinus College. Which is located where? It is 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Huh. So then what is it that brought you to California? It was my partner, actually. Um, originally we just met on a dating app and hit it off but then he moved to Southern California and was teaching at an outdoor science school we kind of lost contact then I needed a job I was not satisfied working um, customer service for a mall and he came back to the East Coast for a visit and that was when I kind of really started developing, like, oh, I like really like this guy. And he's like, yeah, you should come work for this really cool company. Like, I think it would be a really good adventure and really good growing experience for you. I'm like, oh, okay. So he helped me apply, put in a good word for me, and I got in. And um, it was, like, one of the crazy highlights of my life where it's like I applied for this job, and three days later I am – just picking up what little I have and moving to Southern California where I lived in 
um, San Bernardino Mountains, um, and we sort of dated. And then I was just like, there's too much new going on here. I need to live life. I can't handle a relationship right now. But then, and I ended up actually moving back to Pennsylvania, which is why earlier I said about, oh, this is the second time I moved to California. Um, And it was just through communication and my own growth that um, we eventually got back together. And he had a second job in Northern California, um, up in Quincy in Plumas County. And, um, yeah, I was just like, okay, I'll come live with you in the uh, Northern California mountains. This will be great. And that's why we're here. And it's been a really interesting adventure. I loved Quincy. It was a beautiful place. Um, Anyone should go visit it if you just want that picturesque, cute country town. Um, and now I'm loving living in Berkeley. And I never thought I would be able to say those words. Like, literally, two years ago, if I had said, oh, I'm going to love living in Berkeley, California, I'd be like, nope, that's not me. I hate cities. I hate big towns. I like open spaces. And now it is just such an experience and I'm so thankful to be here. So what would you say helped to, because a lot of times people growing up, say in a a conservative kind of environment or that small town kind of uh, environment, um, have a little bit of reticence or fear about venturing too far outside of the familiar comfort zone. Um, what what do you think it is that helped you to be willing to to venture outward rather than to stay safe? Um, hmm. I honestly, you know, it was probably a combination of like an inner and an outer thing. Inner wise. It was my own dissatisfaction with what I was being told and the things I was seeing. Like, it didn't sit right with me. Outerwise, it was seeing people that did conduct themselves with this code of life, and they were living without that greater degree of happiness. And this was even before I realized anything about life coaching or that you could be happier there was just this big question mark of what is missing and what I was thinking inside was reinforced by what I was seeing on the outside and I mean like I said I did it in secret and on the one hand I want to say you know anyone any young person if you live in a conservative area like just be who you are. But like, really, I think being secretive sometimes is actually very important. It allows you to build your foundation. Um, Let the cement set before someone comes and walks on it. Because if you walk on wet cement, you're just going to leave footprints. And that's not what you want when you're trying to form who you are. So I think that was actually kind of beneficial in my case of being having space to do things in secret so I could start wrapping my mind around what, what the world had to offer. 
it makes me think, you know, working with the tarot like I do, one of the cards in the major arcana cycle is called the hermit. And it's a very important <laughs> step in the development process. But a lot of people have a certain reticence around the hermit because um, the hermit can often represent things like introspection and pulling away from the world, just like a hermit going into a cave in order to um, ultimately sit with and be with your own thoughts and whatever is within you rather than having a lot of outside noise and influence. But a lot of people don't like to do that because they're either afraid of or uncomfortable with what they discover or come up against within themselves. And a lot of times that's because it's things that cause them to question what they've just kind of followed along or been conditioned to do or to think or to believe. Um, so if you were, if you were sitting with a coaching client who felt inspired by hearing you talk about that willingness to both do the work for yourself, but then don't be afraid to venture out beyond the borders of your safety and comfort zone. Um, or for anyone who is listening to you talking now, what would be some suggestions or tips or tools that you would offer to them to say, here's how you can allow yourself or give yourself permission to step into that discomfort zone to not just shut down what you may be feeling inside, kind of that gut calling or whatever, but to be willing to actually explore it and open to where it may take you, even if that's unknown or completely different than what you might have thought or been used to? Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things that I would say is create a safe place, like a physical safe space. And sometimes this can be difficult. Uh, I know that I was very fortunate in having extensive woods, um, forest land behind my house, um, where I could do that. I, this little, little shrine altar type space and like I spent hours just making this a beautiful spot that I could like, I felt it was my retreat, which actually sprouted rumors <laughs> in the neighborhood that people were performing demonic rituals <laughs> in the valley. But um, it was nothing like that. But it was a physical space where I could go. It doesn't have to be big. I, it can be a corner of your room. It can be a cushion that you, this is in your mind. You labeled this as my safe space. When I am on this cushion, I get to be who I am. And that, I, that is a very scary, dangerous thought for a lot of people. We are so conditioned and so socialized to be what everyone around us wants us to be that when we're given a little bit of time to be who we are, we're like, oh no, like this is this is uncalled for. But just just that little bit of saying, this is my this is my me chair. I am going to pursue thoughts and ideas that I find interesting when I sit in this chair. Um, in psychology, I, I actually, you know, there are some principles in psychology that I find very useful. Uh, one psychological principle that I find um, to be of great use is state of learning. They would tell us, like, if you're studying for a test, try to study the material in that room because your brain, you know, it 
makes you're not just studying what's on, on paper in front of you. Your brain is also absorbing where you're at, the sound that the room makes, the, the temperature, the lighting. It's all of that other stuff that allows you to access the information then once it comes time for the test. And so it's very much the same idea where give yourself a safe space or a sacred space, if you want to call that. Develop some type. Well, this, okay, now I'm moving into the second thing I would say. Develop a practice. It doesn't matter what you want to label it, a, a meditation practice, a spiritual practice, uh, a, a prayer practice. Just develop some type of habitual activity where you give yourself 10, 15, 20. It doesn't have to minutes. It doesn't have to be a lot. Just develop that habit of, okay, I'm going to sit on this chair, and for the next 15 minutes, I am going to X, Y, Z, clear my mind, listen to this chanting, drum, just some type of ritual or ceremony or just sitting still that allows you to be safe both physically, well, physically, spiritually, and mentally. I, I, those are definitely probably like my two top recommendations for beginning to explore the things that you think are scary. Well, and I, it's interesting to me that theory from psychology that you were talking about too, because in in terms of like creating a, a space, um, you know, I often am recommending to people to create either a meditation space or an altar space or something. And it doesn't have to be big and elaborate. It doesn't have to be a whole room. It may just be a little corner of something and you can just go and stand there. But it's, it's the consistency of doing the things in that space, create an energy in that space so that even the more you do it, like with meditation, for example, if somebody does it at the same time and they have a particular cushion that they sit sit on and a particular place that they sit to do it, the more they do that, the more they'll find that even just going and getting the cushion to put down to sit on automatically starts the process of their mind and their body shifting over into meditative state without them having to do mm -hmm. a lot of thinking or work around it. Um, and I think that that you know, what you were saying just reemphasized for me the importance of both creating a space rather than just haphazardly doing it wherever, whenever, but mm -hmm. having a very intentional place and time to do something like that. And it doesn't have to be long, like you were saying, um, but also that it will get easier the more you do it if you do it consistently rather than doing it randomly. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so one thing you mentioned was when you were uh, younger that you were convinced you were a Republican. Um, <laughs> and, well, we can certainly say that we, even now, we're still in the throes of it, but we have certainly come through a very contentious election in the past few weeks in our country. And... There are many people feeling many things. On one side, there is this 
kind of overwhelming sense of grief, of fear. Um, you know, on the other side, I think there might be a little bit too much gloating um, and that sense of we won, which almost to the point of, you know, beat other people down with the phrase we won kind of thing. So I don't know if you know um, where your family stood in terms of the election and things like that, but it seems as if you probably at least come from an area that might have been a little more Republican-oriented. Um, and I've seen a number of people where there are divisions even in their family, and it's gotten extremely difficult, um, combative, uh, hostile, and even just trying to have a conversation with each other because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when we were talking earlier before the show, um, you had mentioned that just after the election, you got messages and things from family members, some that you hadn't talked to even in a while, who were at least supportive of you, mm-hmm. even though they might have been on the other side of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot, you know, there's a lot of people I think that don't have that kind of familial support. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest if you had a, a coaching client or for people listening who may be in this kind of situation who was struggling with the emotions they were feeling around the election and also in that kind of hostile or combative situation with family members and things? What would you suggest is a way to be able to approach that where either the ability to have dialogue is more open or how they can best take care of themselves if they are faced with that, especially right now, because we're doing this right around the holiday time. And a lot of people are feeling obligated to being with family, Um, you know, whether it was for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or whatever, a lot of people feel as if they can't say no, (laughs) even if they feel like they're walking into the lion's den. So what would you perhaps suggest to someone in that kind of situation, both just for a sense of self-care, but also how to not just recoil and curl up in a corner, but to try to be able to enter into dialogue rather than just fighting, yelling, and trying to to win one side or the other? Mm-hmm. Um, it very much comes down to love, compassion, and empathy. Um, I, yes, I, I was fortunate enough to have all of this unexpected familial support, um, in the days following the election. But I still had my own inner turmoils over what happened, what was going, what could possibly happen. And so I've done a lot of work inside to try to figure out why am I feeling this way? Is there a way I can feel 
other than this? And what does that mean on a bigger scale? So the process that I used um, it is called the work. It's um, this method of thought dissolving that was created by this woman, Byron Katie. You can look her up on the internet, on YouTube. She's really incredible. And the work is an extremely useful tool um, breaking through any of those negative barriers that you have in your mind and allowing you to fill your life with empathy and compassion. So um, basically the, the gist of it is you form these very judgmental, very visceral gut statements. Um, I hate marshmallows or marshmallows shouldn't exist. And then you apply these four questions. Is that true? Can I absolutely know it's true? Um, how does, when I have this thought, how does it make me feel? And who would I be without this thought? So you're like, you know, sometimes you want to say yes right away. And that's fine. You can say, yes, it's true. But then if you allow yourself to sit in the stillness for a little bit and you ask yourself again, can I absolutely know it's true? You just need one example of a time that is not true for it to not be true. Um, marshmallows shouldn't exist. What if there is a person who the only thing they can eat is marshmallows? Well, now it's true because that person needs something to eat. So, bam, reality says it's not true that mar marshmallows shouldn't exist. Then, you know, you examine, okay, how does it make me feel? Well, when I have this thought, I get all anxious, and it, it's not a good feeling. Okay. But if I remove the thought, I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't have these feelings. I would be open to being happy and, and loving and see the world in a more expansive and incorporating way. Um, and then after you do the four questions, turn around where you flip the statement. And there's different ways of flipping the statement, but basically, so like in this one, I would say marshmallows should exist. And you just, you know, you allow yourself to find examples of that being truer than your original statement. So marshmallows should exist and like going back to that other thing like maybe there's a person that only eats marshmallows or maybe there's a person that likes marshmallows if they like marshmallows they should eat marshmallows marshmallows should exist and so through that process you really find things that you thought were concrete in your mind and then it's like oh maybe this isn't uh, kind of like how before the show uh, we were talking about you just need to hear how ridiculous that sounded out loud. Well, this is a way that you can, for yourself, either out loud or on paper or in, even in, just in your head, hear like, that's kind of a crazy thought. Um, so very recently I did this process with statements about our president-elect. And... You know, it was hard. It was it was a very difficult thing. You know, I definitely had things like I hate the president or the president elect. Um, he wants to kill me. He 
shouldn't be alive, he shouldn't be the president. Um, but as I worked with it, and I turned them around, and I asked them these different things, you know, I realized that, and every audience, like, please don't, don't uh, shoot me now, but, um, you know, Donald Trump, he doesn't want to kill me. He doesn't, I don't think he wants to kill anyone because I think at the core, nobody wants to kill anyone. What The conclusions that I came through and the empathy that I de- developed was that Donald Trump is the way he is because he's a hurting soul. He is a soul who lacks love. I, I don't know for for sure, but I think at one point in his life, he must have felt powerless. Something happened that made him crave power, want to be the president, you know? And that's not a person I can hate. That's a per- person I can pity and feel sorry for. And no, it doesn't excuse him from the terrible things that he's, he has said, but it allows me to come to the problem-solving table out of a place of love and compassion rather than a place of hatred and violence because the most lasting changes come from that loving place, that place of light, not that place of darkness. And I would not be able to come to it without having worked through those thoughts. Um... I have no idea what the next four years are going to bring. It could be terrible. It could be not so bad. But I know in my day-to-day life, and this is exactly what I would tell clients, is that if you can develop that empathy and that compassion, you can live in such a way that is going to push back with love. Or not even push back. It's just going to exude love and push and, and create the change that's going to be for the positive as opposed to being for the negative. We don't want to go to war. We don't want to rise up and start some kind of violent revolution because that just ends up with dead people. Do I think that you know, some of the things Donald Trump wants to, wants to do needs to be stopped? Absolutely. He is, you know, there are many things, many actions that he has proposed that should not be allowed to happen. But we're not going to stop them effectively if we do it out of violence. Oh, we might stop something in the short term, but what's the cost going to be? The most lasting effect that we can have is if we come at this, this next four-year period out of love, compassion, and empathy. And the work is how you do it, or at least one way. Well, and, you know, it makes me think uh, on your website, the the three big questions that you um, indicate for someone as where to start on their journey, uh, basically of self-discovery and, and self-improvement, um, is uh, what are, who are you, what makes you happy, and how do you live it? And... For me, the thing that jumps out there that really relates to what you were just talking about is the fact that all of those questions are using the word you. It's not about 
who is this other person? And then you somehow are relating to, comparing, or trying to somehow base who you are in relationship to somebody else. It's who are you, which says stop worrying about out there. Um, you know, what makes you happy, which I think is what a lot of people, I think a lot of people have lost sight of their own personal self in this and get caught up in that kind of group thing. And if you're always worried about how this is going to affect not only you, but somebody else and all of these kind of things, it's like, but you're not starting from your own base that that concrete mm-hmm. foundation you were talking about um and then most importantly is what you were talking about with the compassion empathy and love um is how do you live it and you know people get so worried about what other people are doing that they neglect actually living and being who they need to be so you say that life coaching is helping someone discover who they are, embrace it and be happy. Mm -hmm. What would you offer people at this very moment as a tip suggestion tool idea for where and how they can start now rather than worrying about where they've come from and not getting caught up in worrying about where they want to be or think they should be? Stop and ask yourself, am I breathing? Is my heart beating? It can be as small as that. If you're breathing, that is amazing. I mean, not just, I mean, we take breathing for granted. Find the smallest thing in your life and just wonder at it. Wow, breathing. I have these lungs. I have this diaphragm that moves the lungs. I have all these working parts that allow me to be alive. Like, if you can, if you can appreciate something as small as the fact that you can take in air and live, well, you, everything just got a whole lot easier because I think, I know that the, one of the biggest hurdles for people is they don't appreciate the simple fact that they are alive. And when you can learn to appreciate that, learning to love yourself is just down the road. Because, you know, yeah, um, you know, you can't love the world, truly love the world, until you know how to love yourself. Because that's where you learn what love is. Um, The first year living with my partner just not as happy as I as I thought I could be and the reason I know now is because I was trying to control him all the time I thought he needed to do the things that were going to make me happy but really I just needed to stop caring about what he was doing like he just needed to be him and I just needed to accept that the reason I was so focused on it was because I didn't love myself I didn't love the fact that I was alive And once I realized, actually, it's okay. I have a roof over my head. I have air in my lungs. I ate today. I'm clean. Like, 
just just start counting the little blessings you have you have not what other people have and don't don't think about the tragedies that other people have either just ask yourself am i breathing is my heart beating and if you can say yes to those two questions you've you've opened up the path to appreciating so much more in life and overall learning to love yourself which i think is perfect advice because it turns that gaze back to our center and brings it back to being heart centered rather than always looking outward which is the 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 pitfall that i think many people fall into so as we move to the close of our conversation one thing that i do at the end of each conversation <laughs> is um i have a question to ask you from a previous guest they didn't know who would be getting the question and then i'll be asking you for a question to pose to a future guest and the question i have to ask you from a, a previous guest actually is uh, perfect in the sense that it was two people actually um, Fred Isom and Elsa Elliott, who uh, were talking about um, the use of magic and mental health. And the question that they would like to ask you is, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And what would your superhero costume look like? Oh wow, that is that is a great question. Um, I have actually been thinking. I've been having you know brain trips about this type of concept recently. Um, you know, for years I always thought I wanted some kind of superpower that was like, you know, I wish I could just level buildings, or I wish I could assassinate people from a distance, or you know, lay down swaths of ice or fire, you know, like the dramatic things that we see in the movies. Um, but then, you know, through all of this work that I've been doing on myself, I have come to this realization that the only real power that I need is to heal people. Um, I guess as a superpower, just be able to, you know, lay my hand on people and let them be healed you know, externally and internally. That, you know, um, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you believe in Buddha or not, you know, all these great figures throughout history, being able to perform those kind of miracles, like, that, that is power. That is true power. And so I'm going to go with, you know, being able to heal as a superpower. In terms of a costume, I think... I kind of want to like have like this funny forest wizard kind of thing going on, like big broad rimmed pointed hat that's flopping backwards, kind of like Gandalf's, but maybe in a nice shade of green or maybe brown with like a green sash around it and some kind of simple, loose, but not like unattractive baggy clothing, like loose pants, maybe some type of sash around my middle um maybe a nice long vest or even a robe would be okay as long as like my forearms have some uh, um, freedom greens and browns maybe like like 
brown bottoms and brown under and then like a green. Yeah, I kind of want to be like a tree. Tree of life, man. Yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> well, green and brown are also colors that are associated with healing. Um, so what question would you like to pose to a future guest? And it can be any kind of question, whether it's serious, funny, spiritual, mundane, whatever you want it to be. Um, actually, a question that I have been asking people in my day-to-day life recently is if you met yourself five years in the past, a five-year-ago version of yourself, what observa- observations do you think would form on that five years younger version of yourself? How would you see them, and what opinion would you have of them? An excellent question to leave people with to ponder. So um, as we close, can you perhaps remind people where they can find information out about you and get in touch with you if they were interested in pursuing the start of their journey on discovering who they are and being a happier, more vibrant self? Sure. You can go to my website at shibelifecoaching.com. Shibe is spelled S-C-H-E-I-B. It is a Germanic spelling. Um, Or you can just email me at zach at shibelifecoaching.com if you just want to skip the website. But um, either way, feel free to shoot any questions that you have. I'm always happy to um, answer them to the best of my ability and just open up conversation about becoming happier people. And uh, just to let people know, if they're doing the email address, Zach is Z-A-C-K. Oh, right. Uh, at And Shibe Life Coaching is S-C-H-E-I-B lifecoaching.com. Well, Zach Shibe, I extend to you a thousand gratitudes for taking time to be with us here today and to share some of your life experience and wisdom, which undoubtedly mirrors many people's journey and has perhaps inspired or at least nudged them in a way that can help them to take their next step forward the way that you have into being a fuller version of their full potential self. That's all we can hope. And stay tuned because coming up, we are going to have our segment where you have a chance, if you're listening to the live show, to call in and receive a reading live here on the air. And if you'd like to get into the queue for that, you can do that from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510. You're listening to Revolution with High C. I am High C, and we will be right back. Let me be the rose to teach a glass, spray paint the lawn to get a greener grass. I'll be a brush on cause all I want to do is make you feel a little better. I'll be a cheerleader.
A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net. Revolution with host Hi-C Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Please join us next time for Amethyst Oracle with high C Ludmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. This is Deb Carousella. Thank you for joining us.